0: We're so pleased to have with us today Michael Ignatieff. You know the name, of course. He's written more than 20 books, so you would have come across them. He's an academic, a historian, uh, a journalist, a documentarian. And, of course, you might also remember he was the former leader of the Liberal Party in Canada from 2008 to 2011. He has just uh, written a book entitled, very interestingly, On Consolation. Finding Solace in Dark Times. And I guess there couldn't be a more appropriate time to do this. COVID was not your, it's not what it incited you to do. This was some other very um, odd religiously connected event that uh, sparked this book. We'll talk about that. But but, what do you think of what we're going through now and how we can console each other if we do or if we're now getting into the angry phase i mean we've we've been through so much in the last two years
1: oh it's it's nice to talk to you pamela it has been an unprecedented and astonishing (laughs) event and we've gone through phases i think the early phase uh first lockdown um i think there was a lot of solidarity we 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 held on together and um I was astonished, you know, on the internet, the, the explosion of attempts to comfort and console people, um, great artists, great writers, poets, orchestras, um, got into the business of, of reaching out when we couldn't have physical contact with each other. And I think that showed how much we needed each other. Um, I think it took COVID to remind us that we can't get through anything alone and Being alone is the worst aspect of COVID for so many people, maybe some people watching this show. The the isolation, the loneliness, the sense of your family connections being shredded. All this has been terrible. And the longer it goes on, the tougher it's been. And I, I think everybody's defining, or at least my defining image of this pandemic has been those excruciating photographs of people going to try and see their relatives in care homes and you know, kind of putting their fingers up against the glass so that their mother or their dad knew they were there. That's just heartbreaking stuff. And I think we've all been deeply affected by it. And all I can say is I just hope like everybody else we're out of this soon. At the moment, I'm speaking to you from Vienna. I can't go anywhere without an FPP2 mask. I had I had a vaccine. I can't go in and lecture in my university unless I've had a PCR test and a triple vaccination certificate. It's really tough, and it's wearing everybody down. But we got to get through it, uh, and I think I hope this summer will be in a very different place.
0: Yeah, and and perhaps change our mindset from. From pandemic to endemic, and and realize that we're going to have to live with these things. It's it's one of the things about a global world. People get on and off airplanes all the time and bring with them um, in both directions. Now, uh, the other thing, I mean, when you talk about that scene of of people's hands up against the glass and noses pressed, I mean, we we've seen too too much of it. We've also lost, I think, and and this isn't new because you document this. We've consolation has lost its institutional home. When someone died, we would go to a church, we would go to a funeral, we would mourn. Um, now we can't even do that.:
1: No, yeah, I, I think that's been a tremendous loss. I know that you're from Saskatchewan, and you you know, when I, whenever I, I have very happy memories of driving around rural Saskatchewan and, and one mm-hmm. of the glories of rural Saskatchewan have, have been the churches. Yeah. Um, you know the Orthodox ones, particularly because I have some Russian art parentage, uh, and the sense that that institutional setting is waning away <coughs> means that when we have to console ourselves, we console ourselves on our own, um, and we 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 don't have uh, the comfort and solace that comes from a religion. And part of the point I think of writing this book was just to remind people who, like me, have a bit of a Problem with belief, just how rich and deep and profound the biblical traditions of consolation are, especially the Psalms. I wanted to go back to that because I think, you know, we can't afford to let, let anything go. We, we we need all the help we can. And the Psalms have consoled people for thousands of years. So I wanted to understand how that happens. And, you know, I...
0: this was you you and Zuzana going to, an, you were going to lecture on justice. In religion,'m I'm, I'm probably not capturing that totally. Uh, just tell the story.
1: Well, it, <laughs> yeah, the book began by accident. I was asked to give a lecture <laughs> and I went off to Utrecht, which is in the Netherlands, and I walked mm-hmm. into this huge hall with like two thousand people. and it was part of a choral concert in which four choirs from around the world were going to sing all the settings of the psalms, all hundred and fifty psalms. So I gave a lecture, I can't even remember what it was about, really, but (laughs) I spent the rest of the weekend with my wife just listening to these choirs sing these beautiful settings of the Psalms, and it had a huge effect on everybody in the hall. There were a lot of tears, there were a lot of sort of sense of stunned recognition at the power of this combination of music and and words, and it, it seemed deeply comforting to everybody. And that's what started me on the process of trying to understand why certain kinds of language, certain kinds of... Music, certain kinds certain great verses like the Psalms, have this power to console us in in, in dark and difficult times.
0: You then tell the story through a, a series of historical figures, um, because that is your uh, that is your life work, uh, being a historian. Your embrace of history and its lessons, and and you, I know I've heard you say that you were glad to spend time with these people and and understand that people have gone through this from time immemorial. But embracing history at a time when history is being denied or rewritten to reflect today's, could you just talk to us about that? Because it's a very frustrating situation for many of us.
1: Yeah, I I think the bad news is that we've been rewriting history from from the beginning, human beings are constantly retelling the narrative of how we got here. Um, at the moment, I think there's no doubt, uh, Pamela, that the the worry we've all got is not so much about the past but about the future. Uh, you can tell a kind of confident, happy story about the past if you have a kind of hopeful vision of the future. And and at the moment, the ceiling is very low. The future seems very dark for all of us. Some of it's, I think this pandemic that never seems to end, plus the prospect that there will be other pandemics, because as you Mm -hmm. said, a minute ago, we live in a global world, we all travel and stuff crosses the species barrier from animals to humans, and boom, suddenly you're into uh, global uh, risks. So that is affecting not just our sense of our health, but it's affecting our sense of time. It's affecting our sense of, you know, do we have a future here? And I think Um, you know, everybody who's got kids knows that the kids are extremely worried about the environment and the ecological future and whatever position you take on these issues. I know it's a controversial issue in Saskatchewan and Alberta. The reality is, is that we really aren't sure how we're going to get through the 21st century. We're not sure how we're going to make a transition from a carbon-intensive economy to a carbon-free economy and how we do that without destroying a lot of lives and traditions and livelihoods in the process. So you put those two things together and then you add a, let's add a third just for fun, um, rocketing inequality. Um, You know, I grew up in a Canada that was much more equal in terms of Mm -hmm. uh, income uh, in the 50s and 60s and the statistics prove it. It's not nostalgia. We're now in a much more unequal society where a few people get a hell of a lot of what's great about being in Canada, and a lot of people don't get enough. And, and you put these three things together, and we have a, a lot of uncertainty about what kind of future we've got. And so we're then rewriting our histories um, to figure out how we got to this place. Um, when we look at the issue of inequality, we're one of the things we're doing is rewriting our entire history of nation building. We're rewriting the entire history the relationship between, um, uh, with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, and this is a, in Saskatchewan especially, is an absolutely electric issue and will be for generations. So we don't know how this conversation is going to play out. Um, All we know is we're, we're stuck with each other. Nobody's going anywhere. So we've got to figure out some story about how we got here that we can live with together and share, but all that's terribly difficult. And it's unfamiliar to Canadians. I think we've, we went through a period when I was a, a young person where we had a kind of Canadian national story. Well, that was from more equal, more pleasant, easier times. We're now in a world where we've got lots of Canadians contesting the national nar- narrative. Um, we've got a lot of statues being toppled right a lot of heroes being knocked off their plinths and it's very destabilizing it's very uncertain i i just think that we've got to go through this process there's no there's no alternative we can't we can't turn back and say i'm sorry the national narrative is the national narrative and you gotta shut up and put up and live with it it's just not going to happen we we've done this before let's remember when Quebec surged into uh, national politics in the 50s and 60s, we had to change our whole narrative of the relationship between French and English Canada. And so we have a different story now than we did when I was, you know, 18 or 19. So the politics of the present, I'm I'm getting to my conclusion here, the politics of the present constantly causes us to rewrite the story of how we got here. And that's just, that's just the nature of 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 dynamic, innovative, changing societies like our own,
0: but people who were key players, many of whom you talk about and write in this about in this book, and we'll talk about that in a moment, like um, have now they are dismissed. Uh, now they are rejected. We don't like what those people did. We don't like what they said, and therefore we're going to erase them from the pages of history. That must be the antithesis of what you are as a historian.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, let, let's let's take one particular example. I, I spend a lot of time talking about David Hume, the philosopher, 18th century philosopher David Hume, probably the greatest single philosophical mind in in the english tradition brilliant guy um he for years uh, he lived in edinburgh scotland and the university of edinburgh named one of its big towers hume tower well recently they've taken hume off the tower because uh he said some things about black people about Mm -hmm. slavery that modern eyes find you know jarring and offensive uh, and there, I don't think there's any doubt that they are they are offensive remarks. The, the problem is that David Hume is a lot more than those remarks. He's the greatest philosopher England ever produced. He's one of the wisest historians who ever lived. And he's one of the most humane and compassionate human beings, whoever who ever did anything. So, you know, the, the challenge we've got, and then the same, you know, flip forward to the Canadian example, we're dealing with John A. MacDonald. I grew up. Living with John A. McDonald is one of my heroes, this kind of drunken guy who kind of, you know, lying catatonic and in the, you know, and drunk for days and then rallying himself to basically, you know, steer the country through the, the yep. first 30 year 30, 40 years of his life. I mean, a political genius. And um, and yet it, it's obvious that he was responsible for. The residential school system. He was responsible for the crushing of the Northwest Rebellion in 1885. Um, These are part of our national narrative, and we have to take it all in. And so, the the punchline here is: why can't we hold two thoughts in our minds at the same time? That's my question. (laughs) He is a great builder of the Canada we know today. He is also responsible for some of the problems that Canada faces today. Two thoughts are possible, but expunging him, driving him out, renaming buildings at Queen's University, Canada, because it's associated with McDonald's toppling statues seems to me the wrong way to go. We need to own McDonald, we need to own all of it. And this connects to my book in the sense that you can't be consoled for difficult things about your own past. Consoled for difficult things that you've done, unless you own all of it. I mean, there's a chapter in this book about Václav Havel, the great Czech uh, dissident who became president of his country. Well, he sits in prison, facing up to the fact that he betrayed some of his principles, and he does so with incredible courage and honesty. And I think his honesty allowed him to live in truth about that and become the great leader he was. But you. You have to shoulder the burden of truth here, and the and our country has to shoulder the burden yeah. of truth.
0: Exactly. And and
1: the point is, you know, my truth will not be an Aboriginal leader's truth. We have to sit down, and talk it through, and it's going to take a long time. It's going to take generations. And it'll keep going. There's no end to this story.
0: No, there is no end. That, I, And I want to come to that. But when you said Vaslav Havel and when I was reading the references to him, it's it's almost emblazoned in my brain because it's, it's a quote of his that I love so much. But I'm going to read it just so that we get it accurate. Regardless of where I begin my thinking about the problems facing our civilization, he said, I always return to the theme of human responsibility. And the main task for the coming era is a radical renewal of our sense of responsibility. Our conscience must catch up to our reason, otherwise we are lost. It it couldn't be more true today that we do, as you say, have to take responsibility for some of the things that we have done or things that have occurred in the past, but it's it's facing up to that reality that everybody needs to go through that process and take responsibility.
1: Well, yeah, there are no there are no exemptions here. Yeah, Aboriginal Canadians have to take responsibility for stuff. Aboriginal leaders have to. We all yeah. just have. It's the same same business for everybody. Nobody gets a free ride through this midway. I We mean, we've all got to step up.
0: When when you talk about when as we talk about the. Uh, Indigenous issues, and and it's the words, it's like consolation in the title of your book. The first thing that comes to mind in our modern usage is consolation prize, like kind of coming in second, um, as, as opposed to the original meaning of the word, which is to console, you know, and to be together, to offer someone solace. Um, it's funny how that changes.
1: Yeah, I think part of the reason for writing the book was to kind of rescue the word consolation from mm-hmm. from its association, in fact, with consolation prize. The consolation prize is the prize you don't want to win, you know. And and uh, you know, one of the one of the great images of that reluctance to be consoled by second prize was the Canadian women's hockey team. You know, that just. This famous scene where the, this woman, you know, is given a silver medal, and they are so expecting a gold medal that they just yeah. cannot. It feels like shame to put the silver medal. And It's very human. I mean, I they yeah. were then required by the Olympics to wear the darn things and be photographed. <laughs> they look miserable doing it. But you know, there are some times when yeah, the best you can do is a consolation prize. And I want to, I want to rescue consolation from this this area and and say that um you know say something very simple which is that grief and loss and failure just go with the territory of being a human being. There isn't a human being who can get through life without some of those experiences. And the point about consolation is to find some meaning for them so that you can, you know, live in hope. So you can get back on the horse and 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 ride. And you know, so I've done a lot of uh showed a lot of great stories from the past of people who did just that and and I hope uh I hope people find that useful in their own journeys but I don't I don't think I've defined all the places you can get consolation from heaven forbid you know that the, the sources of consolation are essentially infinite if you just think of um you know I've chosen some music which means a lot to yeah. me but boy, you think about the music in the 20th century. I mean, there's just an infinite source of, of things you can put on that just make you feel life is worth living, you know. Mm-hmm. And God bless the, the, the musical traditions we've inherited. So well, I am you know, telling an optimistic story. There's, the sources of consolation are infinite, and I just want to invite everybody to find their own
0: the The uh, experts say that actually, the reason we listen to sad music when we're sad is that and that it's not depressing. it is actually that consolation because you know others must have gone through it or they wouldn't have written that song
1: absolutely absolutely yeah. that's the that's the, that in a way is the key. I mean uh, my my sense of what it is when you console someone is that you sit with them and say, basically, I know. I know, I, you know, I know what you're going through. And that sense of solidarity, that sense of, of, of empathy is crucial to the process of consolation. And when we listen to music, we have a feeling sometimes that people know what we've been through. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it very consoling. And this is a tremendously important part of the human experience. I can
0: think about being a 16-year-old with a broken heart and listening to that song over and over on on 45 so that you can really
1: hear it over and over
0: again the the other word and and i i I just want to touch on it before we move on but reconciliation and and reconciling yourself it's the same dilemma with consolation uh prize and and consoling because it's the same thing we we're talking now about reconciliation with the indigenous people But reconciling also just means okay, well, you just got to deal with the cards you dealt, kind of thing, and that's our more common usage of it.
1: Yes, I think it in our reconciliation with Aboriginal peoples, what we're 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 looking for is both accepting and being resigned to the fact that we have a bad history which we have to share and own up to. But the second part is much more positive. We're looking for how we create a common. Future together, you know, how, where do we go from here? And and so we're struggling towards creating a future that we can believe in together. And I think the process of reconciliation is close to consolation in the sense that mm-hmm. both are essentially seeking for hope, and we're we're looking for hope. In I
0: love the writing about Lincoln, of whom I am a a huge fan, but your description of his um, ideological dilemmas, his human dilemmas, you know, sending kids off to die, ordering the execution of traitors, and not necessarily coming to an answer on the big, big question of whether or not Uh, slavery could be ended. His own dilemma, seeking um, consolation and that sense of hope from his religious beliefs, that that still remains the kind of quintessential power struggle for politicians. Do you do the right thing for many and hurt the few, vice versa? Um, What have you thought about that in your post-political life or your return to your original life <laughs> right
1: well i I wrote about lincoln because i i one of the things i take from lincoln's second inaugural is that um is this is a probably the greatest speech in the english language about how you how you get two people who've been at each other's throats for five years to reconcile. Yeah. to accept certain facts and to build a future together. and um it's it's a sublime performance, but one of the things that he that he says, which I think is fantastic lesson for politics, he says basically, both of you guys, north and south, believe that God was on your side. Yeah. I'm here to tell you, nobody knows what side <laughs> God was on it's not for human beings to know. There is no such certainty in politics. That's where this is the message I take. We can only deal with each other in the here and now, down below, a long way away from God's wisdom. We can seek God's wisdom. We can pray to him. But when we do politics, we have to accept with humility that there's just a lot we don't know. And uh, so nobody should come to the table in politics saying, "I've got all the answers, I've got a direct line to God, I've got the right answer, and you have to uh, you have to deal with me." Uh, There are no the the point about any democratic politics is that there aren't many table clearing claims. We sit around a table and and figure out how to how to slice it up, and everybody gets much less than they all want, but the overwhelming objective is to keep the show on the road and keep it the cart from tipping over Um, but Lincoln is a sublime example of teaching that there's a certain kind of modesty that's at the core of good politics and that's why you know I find him so uh you know so inspiring and and clearly in my own political life I learned all these lessons too late but (laughs) <laughs> this is not about me. <laughs> you
0: know, I, no, but but it is connected in the sense to the book. We have both look, been bruised and battered by uh, our relationship to political parties. I wish I'd I wish I'd kept my distance. If I know if I knew then what I knew now, of course I would not do that. Is there a sense of that? I mean, you came in. In fairness, you came into the um, political arena at a time when the party that you were going to represent was on a downward slide. I'm not sure anybody would have really you know, changed that. We, we go through cycles here. Did it make you bitter or angry or like, how have you wrestled with that issue to make it something you've learned from?
1: Um, I think it was tough. I, I, the, the difficulty about politics is that you lose in public. And, yes. And and, and and people don't vote for you. You know, they 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 basically say, I, I I like the other guy. And if you're a competitive person like me, you kind of it hurts to think you think, God, I'm I got something here. Why why doesn't anybody see it? So losing, and I lo- lost very, very decisively, um uh was was uh, a little hard at the start. The, in my case it wasn't the end of anything, because I just went back to doing what I did before. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. Many politicians go through a terrible time after defeat, because politics is all they've ever done. I was a special case. I, the next morning, basically, went back to work at the university, and I've been there ever since, and I'm fine. Um, I I think the more difficult uh, reckoning, Pamela, is just what we were talking about earlier, you know, being truthful, you know, you, I, you know, I, I could say, you know, I did my best. Well, the reality was my best wasn't nearly good enough. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, being truthful about this is difficult. I, I eventually concluded that there were there were simply some mistakes I made that I made because I was inexperienced. I didn't I I didn't know the ground. There were things that I just should have known but didn't know because I spent five and a half years in the game, learned as fast as I could, but didn't learn enough and didn't learn it in time. So you have to take responsibility for that. And but you don't have to take responsibility for everything. You don't have to spend your life walking around with sackcloth and ashes with a bag over your head saying, I'm <laughs> You know, how pathetic I am. You take responsibility for what is properly your responsibility. But you don't take responsibility for the entire Liberal Party of Canada. You don't take responsibility for the history you inherited. You don't take responsibility. You, you you have to figure out what is the piece of this that you have to own. And you own it for the rest of your life. And and that's, you know, that, that that's how it goes. I learned a lot writing the book about that. Um, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. I feel... You know, I I feel fine. I also feel finally very glad to have done it. I I I wouldn't have missed it in a crazy way. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Susanna and I did it together. It it. uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to get all sentimental, but you know, you really learn the country. Boy, you just you get into your soul. You know, and that is something that's unforgettable. And I, anybody listening to this, who you know. Hears me say, you know, don't touch politics. It's terrible. Then, no, no, put your name on a ballot. You'll see what it's like. It's an unforgettable experience. And it deepens your, you know, your feelings about, you know, your country and everything. And I, I so I don't regret any of that. I just, regret, I just wish I'd been better at it. But that, you know, that's true. That's true of a lot of things in my life. I wish I was better at a whole lot of stuff. But there is always this
0: uh, with the, You know, you talk about making peace and being truthful about and that's all right. But but loss or defeat or failure is still um, it still comes with that dose of humiliation. Like you feel humiliated, even though you might not have had responsibility. And I just think there maybe are some things that you can't console other people for. You just need to work through it whatever that means. Yeah, I
1: think I, I think that's right. It is humiliating to lose and lose publicly and and takes a while to get over and some of this is unconscious. If that's what yeah. you're saying, you're absolutely right. Yep. It just it it takes time. And then you wake up one morning you feel a lot better. You don't quite know why, but it's true. <laughs>
0: You went off to do, as you say, you went back into the uh, university, the world of academia, uh, your comfort zone for sure, and your expertise. You took on another project several years ago, which was to go to run uh, a university funded by George uh, Soros in uh, Budapest in in Hungary, um, your wife of course has roots there, so there'd be some intrigue. Uh, but when you look, uh, you know, at the world and the discussions, Soros is either revered or reviled, depending on what point of view you come from. Um, and you were, I think, optimistic at the beginning that uh, that Orban might, despite sort of dictatorship uh, rules and regulations, might allow academic freedom. Is it not possible
1: well it was a it was an extraordinary experience. I mean Central European University is a pretty good university, and I mm-hmm. was willing to leave harvard to to do it and I was kind of excited with the prospect and i no sooner had I arrived than I was in the fight of my life to kind of keep it in Budapest, where it had been founded in nineteen ninety one to assist the transition from communism to you know democracy, and we trained you know. 18,000 students to to be free. That's what we were doing, and I started. It's a wonderful, wonderful institution, and we just got full force attack from a authoritarian state determined to drive us out, and um, and we fought as best we could. Um, we we got huge amounts of domestic support in Budapest. One of the most moving experiences of my life was to. See eighty thousand people marching past our doors, chanting "free universities in a free society." Eighty thousand people—it was just overwhelming uh, experience. So, one conclusion is: don't you know? Don't write off the Hungarians. They some of them mm-hmm. know what freedom is, but you you can't in the long term oppose a government determined to throw you out of their country. You just can't win that battle. So in 2019, I moved the university to Vienna, which is why I'm talking to you from Vienna. Mm -hmm. But it was a bitter experience um, because um, uh, it, it, it taught me, first of all, that the European Union, which is supposed to restrain its own members and prevent them from going off the democratic path, was incredibly weak and ineffective in stopping this. Um, and it also proved to me that um, all across the world we're faced with people like Orban who are elected by democratic means and then use democracy to abolish democracy. And that is what's underway in Hungary. I mean, it it is still nominally a democracy. But the control that Orban has over the electoral system, the media, the courts, um, the economy is such that he's got an election next April and it's it's gonna be crucial because he's seeking an unprecedented you know, fourth term. Mm-hmm. And I think when he, if he wins, if he wins, um, democracy in Hungary will will essentially be crushed. And that's astonishing result if you think of the european union being a union of 27 democracies one of them has just been asphyxiated and so that's a that's a serious serious matter when
0: when you look at it though the fight was i don't know you tell me less about academic freedom and more about the political fight between the two major players. I mean, Soros, that's also his sure. group and, and, sure. and those two, uh, Orban and Soros, will be enemies to the death, right? Uh, sure. Did you just get caught in the middle?
1: Well, I, I, I'm i rather proud of the ways in which we framed the issue as an issue of academic freedom, which is what it yeah. was. I, I just don't think you, countries have the right to throw universities out of their yeah. real estate just because they don't like their political complexion. So we framed it as an academic freedom issue and were enormously successful doing so. And I think this has hurt, This really did hurt uh, Orban. But um, yes, the main event was a battle between Viktor Orban on the one hand and George Soros, a um, Hungarian Holocaust survivor, multi-billionaire on the other in New York. So um, see, so you did and- learn something about politics in
0: your experience. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, sure, sure. And the the aspect of the campaign against Soros, which was shocking to me, um, was the anti-Semitic tone. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, it just, you know, there was a period in 2018 when simply every single poster in the city, and I mean every single one, every tram, every subway, every billboard was don't let George Soros have the last laugh. The picture of the founder of my university laughing. Well, if you go back to the 1930s, one of the most standard anti-Semitic tropes employed by the Nazis was, why are the Jews laughing at us? Stop the Jews laughing at us. I mean, now, this is interesting because if you went to Mr. Orban, Mr. Orban would deny on a Bible that he was anti-Semitic. And I don't think actually think he is anti-Semitic personally. He will tell you, oh, the synagogues in Hungary are safe and blah, 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 you know, some of my best friends are Jewish, blah, blah, blah. But he will not hesitate to use discredited, disgraceful anti-Semitic tropes that he knows full well are kind of dog whistle to the anti-Semitism in Hungarian culture. And... I don't accuse Hungarians of being anti-Semitic. That's not where I'm going. But the fact is that 600,000 Hungarian Jews were exterminated in 1944 with the active collaboration of thousands of Hungarian people. And that's just the nightmare from which Hungarian society is trying to awake. And he is absolutely shameless and irresponsible in going back there and using these tropes um, because I think it it stirs up some very dark water and encourages some very bad tendencies in Europe. And there's quite a lot of anti-Semitism yeah. in Eastern Europe. And you really do not want to play with that fire because it'll blow the house up. Yeah. You, you, you've you touched on
0: this in your book, too, because you write about Karl Marx and Engel and, and Marx's very... Uh, intrinsic sort of uh, anti, th- this picture he paints of they're the money grubbers and the stealers in in his conversations about how he was going to make, you know, heaven on earth here. Um, but uh, again, so questions about how he's remembered in history. But the story of Primo Levi, a Holocaust survivor um, whose life came to an end prematurely, Tell tell us about that um, and why you chose that story.
1: Well, it, you know, one of the things for which we all need consolation is what happened in the twentieth century: uh, Stalin's extermination of millions of people, including millions of Ukrainians, <clears throat> and the extermination of the Jews. And I <clears throat> have a chapter about Anna Akhmatova, the great mm-hmm. Russian poet, who memorialized what Stalin had. Stalin's crimes, and then I have a section on Primo Levi. Primo Levi's young Italian chemist who went to Auschwitz in 1944 and barely survived it, and came alive in 1945, and then dedicated the rest of his life to writing about the Holocaust experience in, in Auschwitz. And I think more than any other single figure, um, determined to serve as the witness to Say yes, this happened. This is exactly what happened, and we must never forget. Um, and he was also a superb stylist. He's a, a genius as a writer, <clears throat> and um, but at the end of his life, <clears throat> I think he began to worry that the lessons of the Holocaust had not been learned. There was a lot of Holocaust denial around. Yeah, he was worn out from the struggle to bear witness um, and appears to have taken his life at the end of his life. And um, he's a a shining light to me because he's A, so courageous and so lucid. Um, But one of the things about him that's troubling is that I think he, one of the things that kept him going in Auschwitz and kept him going as a writer was the belief in us, the people who came after, that we would be uh, his consolation in the sense that if he bore witness, yeah. we would listen and we would hear it. And so his work is very challenging to us. Have we learned the lessons? Have we, um, uh, can he claim to be consoled by the fact that his message has been passed on? And it's not its not clear anymore. It's not clear. Um, uh, the Holocaust has passed from history into kind of myth and now into kind of a matter of opinion, you know, and and, 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 that, and a
0: public and a and a political football, you know, the uh, and, party and changed the their positions.
1: Yeah. 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 And and that I think would surely disappoint him. Um, yeah, you know, so
0: the um one of the issues that I'm working on very Uh, actively, and it comes from my own personal experience. My mother with Alzheimer's, and I'm working on on medical assistance in dying and allowing people the right to make an advanced request so when they know they're going inevitably down that road, they can find some peace in advance, knowing that um, they can die with some dignity and you talk about um, I'd like your views on that but I'm also interested because you talked about Cicely Saunders and uh, her role a British nurse who kind of invented palliative care um, and oh. that is the ultimate in consolation in many ways.
1: Yeah well it's a book that's mostly about writers and painters and artists yeah who seek to console themselves and then console others. Cicely Saunders is unique in the sense that she tried to create a place, an institution um, for those approaching the end of their lives in which they could have the peace and quiet and the relief from pain through good palliative care that would allow them um, to make peace with their life and make peace with their relatives. And I think one of the most she's an inspiring figure because she she understood how deeply at the end of life people need to be consoled, not and comforted, not just for the pain, not just for the fear of dying, but for making peace for their their relations, their family. You know, mm-hmm. it's a very touching story that Cecily Saunders tells about asking a a woman dying of cancer, you know, where it hurts and the woman saying, "All of me is wrong." You know, it's a haunting phrase. I mean, when you're dying, all of you is wrong. Not just you yeah. know, it's not just the pain. It's it's the, the whole family thing. So you know, she tried to create a place in which, if all of you was wrong, you could spend time to heal what could be healed. And I, I think this is one of the most moving and important practices of consolation. And it's had a huge global effect. You know, there's palliative care regimes in most hospitals now and there weren't in 50 60 70 years ago so this is a she's a heroine of mine a wonderful woman who i had the great good fortune to meet and so that's why she's she's in the book um there's one other astonishing thing that i i think may be the most important thing i learned doing in the whole book which is she she got me to th- She had the effect on me of making me rethink dying itself. Mm -hmm. Um, She said, you know, when you die, it's not the end. There's still something extremely important that you can do in the way you die. Never Mm -hmm. thought of that, which is that you can do something by the way you die that takes the fear of it away from those you love. Well, that's a fantastic yeah. Thing I, mean, I just don't know whether I'll ever be capable of it, Pamela. But I, I certainly know what my dying is for now. I I want to you know if my kids are there, I want to say, look, it ain't so bad. I'm, I'm I'm going, but here's what it's like, and and let's not let's not be afraid of it. Well, if you could do that, you go to you go to the end of your life being very consoled, because that would be the final thing you could do on behalf of yeah. your those you love so
0: i i do think that's so important i just i just went through this with a a friend who chose to to leave with the assistance of maid and uh was absolutely had all of her faculties until the very end and and gathered 10 of us in a room and literally said goodbye she got to say goodbye we'd all been doing it over the the weeks in advance but I think what she gave us, the gift to us, was was she was at peace. So therefore we could be at peace. We didn't need to mourn this loss. We needed yeah. to celebrate
1: her ability to choose it. Yeah. yeah. Well, these are these are very important developments. And they I think they can be very consoling. I, I don't want to be sentimental about this. I mean, yeah. no, no, it's exactly. absolutely awful for people. Yep my own parents' death wasn't great. so, but i but Cicely Saunders points to a much better way, I, the possibility of a good death. And I think it's something we should fight for 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 those we love and hopefully for ourselves as well.
0: I would be remiss if I let you go uh, and ended this conversation before I got your thoughts on what is going on uh, in Ukraine uh you you do have russian roots but i know you've written about this uh extensively and and done um, documentaries on it as well well what do you think is this just another game of politics is mr putin just taking advantage of a weak us president is it a time to form an alliance between he and like how do you read it
1: Well, I think he's testing American leadership in Europe. And I think his objective is basically to drive the Americans out of Europe and splinter NATO and and then establish his own sphere of influence in which all of the nations that border Russia would then suddenly have their security dependent on Vladimir Putin. And I think this is just intolerable, not just for the Ukrainians, but for the Poles and for the Czechs and for the Hungarians and for anybody, and especially for the Baltics. Um, And Canada is is a big issue for Canada because we just have so many Ukrainians, so many people from the Baltic states, so many people from these countries. It's it's a a live and pressing issue for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Canadians, especially out on the prairies. Yeah, but right in my neighborhood. Yeah. What, what where do I think it's gonna go? I I I think it's already begun in yes, the sense of course. That it's yeah. already, you know, there's appeared to be a cyber attack on the Canadian yeah. Foreign Service, so yeah. cyber attacks inside uh the institutions of the Ukrainian state. Uh there are various possibilities. He may send troops in to create a land bridge between the Donetsk possessions and Crimea. He may he may go actually for Kiev itself. All I know is that um, I think Ukrainians will fight and resist. There's a long tradition of guerrilla warfare in Ukraine, which goes back a very long way. So um, they will not submit to um, uh, Russian military occupation ever. Um, I think it's I think it's also clear that uh, NATO does not form a threat, uh, pose a threat to Russia. What poses a threat to Russia is liberal democratic states on its border. Uh, and if Ukraine was to slip out of the orbit of Russia and become a kind of, you know, successful democratic state that does threaten uh, Putin because it sets up an alternative model to. The increasingly authoritarian rule that he has established in now all of this is, you know, relatively obvious. I think the difficulty that I have is understanding what we can do about it. Clearly, mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know bellicose talk, but it's not. And there have been a deployment of eight thousand five hundred troops, or they're on alert. Yeah. Uh, military supplies have been sent to the Ukrainians, and probably some covert stuff that we don't know about to stiffen their capacity. There's some ships off in the in the in the uh, in the Black Sea, but in a shooting war, I, I I'm finding it hard to see exactly um, how we hold the Russians back. Unfortunately, if it doesn't come to a shooting war, I'm not sure how the financial sanction, sanctions package is going to defer him. I think he's discounted it quite a lot. I think another thing that he knows, and if you're in Vienna, you feel this very close, that uh, any anything he does uh, will involve turning off the gas tap right. to Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And suddenly, you know, we're going this can have a devastating effect on the European economy. So... He's playing with fire in every kind of way. Um, I think it's insane, literally insane, to invade Ukraine because I think it—it's not—it's not. He—he it's not, he can't win. Taking part of it doesn't sor- solve his problem his either problem, right? because you're still left with this democratic Ukraine, which is the real problem. So I just don't know how it's going to go. Go and I. <clears throat> and then final thought, and then I'll shut up is. He is calculating that Biden is weak and is distracted. The Americans are just completely focused on their own partisan difficulties yeah. and on Omicron. The British, who are the other major ally, are, you know, the government's hanging by a thread. Yep. Yeah, sure. Macron, France has got an election in April. So Putin is calculating this is the moment of maximum vulnerability. I think the the Allies are doing their best here, but the the hard question is how do we have anything that we can say and do that will actually stop troops moving across an international frontier? And I don't have an answer to that question.
0: There was lots of activity in the last 24 hours because we've seen politicians, Canadian politicians, those who serve in cabinet, holding up signs on Twitter saying, we stand with Ukraine. And the other side of that being is you're the guys in charge do something don't go on twitter and hold up a hashtag is there something we should do
1: well it, you know th- this then involves the deployment of canadian forces mm-hmm. essentially and I, I i i've made enough mistakes as an armchair general i really don't want to go there because <laughs> it makes you you make a fool of yourself but i do think these are the questions the prime minister will have to Asked seriously, if we want a world that um, is safe from territorial aggression, um, Canada has answered that question twice, in well, three times in in the First World War, and the Second World War, in Korea, and I and heaven forbid we commit Canadian soldiers, but let's remember we have, and on precisely this issue. So at some point. Um, and they can only be done in concert with other nato allies this is this is the this is the question we're going to have to answer and i think sooner rather than later and it's it's an extremely difficult one and i don't i hate empty bellicose talk from yeah. as i say armchair yeah. specialists i because i i i don't want to talk us into any stupid action but i i do think this is the issue not you know, hashtag expression right. verbal support, but do you send Canadian military units to this region to dissuade and deter and if necessary to use force? And that's what it comes down to. And
0: yeah, I I agree a hundred percent. That that is the question. That's that is where we're at. Michael, um I've known you for so long and and you are an extremely Resilient person, and to have you now come back with this book at this time, uh, I think we're we're all very grateful to a see you back in in this world, but also talking about something that's very real today. All its historical antecedents are important, but we're we're all looking for consolations. So, the book on consolation, finding solace in dark times. The author, Michael Ignatieff. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Pamela. Nice to talk to you. Yeah. Great. Great
0: to see you.